Thank you, Ashley. Well, I was just really overwhelmed this morning with um, just all the contributions from, man, just I get here and people are just smiling, setting up, drinking coffee, running around, figuring out problems and solutions. And, and then a worship team and other, like a few of you are, haven't been on worship yet. And it's just unbelievable to see every week coming together uh, the, the contribution of the family. It's, it's unbelievable. And, and then just from the front, those coming with testimonies that are stirring for breakthrough. And, uh, and, and then just seeing even from, you know, from the mouth of kids, we have a real passion for the word and the spirit to, to be our foundation here. And, and, and sometimes that means we, we venture into territory that might be a little nerve-wracking. I don't know what your background is. Um, we, we take pride on the fact that, that we don't identify ourselves with, with any one stream or background or denomination. And so even this morning, you know, like, it, it still blows my mind that my, my kids, like, understand what the concept of, like, praying in the spirit or tongues or whatever you want to call it is. I, had, I was always kind of taught that that was only for the super spiritual and realized that's not true. And, I, and then I was, I've also been taught that it's like just part of like becoming a Christian, which is also not true. So if you don't pray in tongues or, or, or that stuff weirds you out or you've seen some of those things abused, um, that, that doesn't make you any more or less spiritual um, as, as I can promise you my kids aren't more spiritual than you uh, or I or anyone else. And, and yet at the same time, you know, we have a deep desire to see the stuff that's in Scripture come to life. The healing, the miracles, the gifts, you know, Paul gives a very strong uh, exhortation, if you will, to the people in Corinth and saying, you know, not to get rid of the gifts, but to do things with purpose, you know, and, and to, if you're going to give something, interpret it. The interpretation this morning, we have a really good God, enemy get out, right? And, and, if, and if you keep along the lines of what's the spirit want you to do with something, it's amazing with, with how you can move in unity, a, a, a group of people. Um, and, and then it's amazing to me just how, um, just even from the mouth of kids, that they remind us what we have access to. So just be encouraged today. And, uh, and ultimately, we anchor everything on what's in the Word of God, and that's what we're going to be preaching out of this morning. Amen. Cool. Okay. So we're in 40 days of purpose. And today, the question I want to ask us is, what's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of life? I... I um, I was listening to one of my favorite theologians recently, who sh he's like an old man in England, and he's up in the Scottish Highlands, his name's Tom Wright, and he goes, he was walking with his little grandson, and there were a few kind of people around, and his, his grandson gave him one of those looks, he goes, grandfather, what's the meaning of life? That's the story. And, and this guy who's written more books, more eloquently than anyone else on the face of the planet that I know of, just paused, and he goes... And then all the people stopped and wondered what grandfather would say. And I panicked. <laughs> this is the most qualified theologian, in my opinion, on earth. And, and he made up some excuse to tell his grandchild later. And he goes, in the moment, I couldn't even tell my own grandchild what the meaning of life was. <laughs> and everyone stopped and perked up. Why? It doesn't matter how many times you hear it. If someone, if you're on a train or if you're on a plane, or you're just walking down the street, or you're at the office, and, and someone asks someone the question, what do you think the meaning of life is? I guarantee you, you stop and listen. It's the most captivating question on the planet. It doesn't matter if you've settled it in your heart, there's something inside of you that continues to ache. Why? Because there's still something. Those of us that have been encountering the person of Jesus, maybe for most of our life, maybe for a few years, maybe a month, maybe a day, it doesn't matter how much you've encountered God, there's still this longing 
for a realm that's still greater and beyond and, and, and something even more real than this life. And when you ask what the meaning of life is, the most human question that there ever was, people have been asking what the meaning of life is from the very beginning. And the most learned people on the planet still wrestle with it when it comes from the mouth of a child. To just give it to me straight, grandfather. What's the meaning of life? So I'm not going to answer it yet. I'm going to keep us in the tension. But I want to ask you something. If you had someone sitting next to you, or you had a grandkid, or you just had a friend, what's the meaning of life? What's your answer? So I was running again. I, I, run, I run twice a week or two, three times a week if my knees can handle it. And, uh, and I wear sunglasses in order for the sweat and the ugly tears that come when I'm listening to worship and the Lord speaks. And uh, I, I tend to have these moments where I just have to stop. And I had another one of those this week. And I had, to, <laughs> I had to, like, stop an ugly cry. So usually I don't have to stop completely and, like, go off into, like, off of, in the, it's not like a forest where I run, but it's like a place where I'm like, oh, man, someone's going to see this is, like, really intense. And, and I'm listening to the worship. And it doesn't help when the worship song reaches, is like, its moment. And I'm having a moment with God. And then the music is going. And then all my emotions start kind of, like, coming to the surface. And, and I was, like, having one of those, like, convulsing. Does anyone else do this? Is this, like, the weirdest thing on the planet? I do this almost weekly. Almost weekly I have a, a, a moment like this. And so I was having this thing with the Lord. And it was really simple. It, it wasn't really heavy. It, was just, it just kind of touched my heart again. And I, I go running usually when I'm, like, I'm pent up to, like, that point in the day where I'm, like, I just I have to get out of here. And so, you know, it's, it's got that added bit of, like, Whatever. So then I have that moment, and the Lord just reminded me. He goes, uh, and it felt like he was just saying, you don't ask enough of my people. And that was something over COVID. It was, it was something I just got touched with, where, where, you know, in the midst of, like, everything being wiped out, we had no rhythms, no norms, no church besides online and whatever else. And, and one of the things the Lord wanted to talk about was, you don't ask enough of people. You know, there's, there's this thing that no one, no one gets to the end of their life and wishes it was like, man, I wish I would have done a little less. I, I, I wish I would have just, you know, given a little less of my all. I don't mean striving. I just mean just put every ounce of your being into something. We actually burn and long to give our everything to something. We just hate burnout. We hate anxiety, stress, and we hate false narratives of the true narrative that we know that our life is supposed to be going towards, right? We, we want to be part of the story that means something. And I, and I felt like he was just kind of, all in one moment, it was like the Lord was saying, like, if you really believe what I say about you and my heart for people, the meaning that is attached to what I give humanity, you don't ask enough. People want more. That was a challenge, and I don't even understand all of what that means. I just know that something in this 40 days, I would like the Lord to encounter each of you in a fresh way to capture more of you. Because I think your hearts already say yes, but I don't think we know what it means. Because there's still an element of each of us where the meaning of life is cloudy. 
And I'm going to try to give you a couple words today to encourage your spirit and give some clarity. But they're still just my words. You need to have the living God who breathes breath and gives life. Give that to your spirit. What is the meaning of life? Hezekiah was the greatest king that Israel ever had. I know David's really popular, but he made some mistakes. Hezekiah was probably the most pure and significant king that it says before him and after him, there was no one like him. And Hezekiah got to the end of his life, and a prophet named Isaiah told him, your time's up. You're sick. He got sick, and he's like, your time's up. You're, you're going to get your house in order. And Hezekiah does this, and this happens multiple times in Scripture, where someone has a circumstance that looks like this. This guy had the prophet of God, the voice piece of the Almighty, telling him, yeah, there's no chance. And he goes and negotiates with God 15 more years of his life. God gives him 15 more years of life. Why? Because he asked. <laughs> and he met with God, and there's like this tension in the text, in the scripture. And we don't really understand what's happening. But we, we see that he was a man that describes him as he trusted in God and that God was with him. There was some kind of intimacy, connection, and depth and he had given everything of himself to this God and in trust. And when that kind of exchange and relationship has this moment, what was the response 15 years? Imagine what his 15 years looked like when he knew he had 15, he had from the voice piece of the Almighty, he knew he had 15 years left. What would your life look like and how would you set the rhythms and the priorities in your life if you had 15 years from right now? 15 years from right now. What would change on your schedule? What would change on your priority list? What would change in your, in your places where you needed to let go and forgive? What would, what would you instantly go about trying to let go of that you're holding on to? What would you be not as stressed and anxious about if you knew you only had 15 years? We often do like if you had a week to live, what would you do? I don't want to do that. What if you had 15? It's still a long time, but no one thinks they're going to be gone in 15 years. Fifteen years. That's our mindset for today. So go back to the question, the meaning of life. My son, uh, well, I've got a couple sons, but Finn, for instance, Judah does the same thing, but I still remember because Finn's my oldest, and, and we'd have these moments in the car. He'd be in the car seat. I don't know. As soon as he can start talking. And, and he'd be talking about poop, pee, and throw up one second like they do, and then the next moment he's staring out the car window Dad, uh, what's happening to all those people when they die? That'd be kind of the questioning. Or, or he'd be sitting on the toilet. I'd go into the bathroom. He squats on the toilet, um, feet up on the toilet. So if you come into our house and you see like, kind of like dirty toilet seats, it's because my son still like puts his feet on the toilet seat. It's like a squatty potty. At some point he's going to kill me for that, but... He's still preteen. He doesn't know how to be embarrassed quite, quite enough yet. So, so that's how he sits. So you see our toilet seats. It's just probably the bottom of my kid's feet. Uh, and he was sitting there as like a three-year-old. And, and he just started telling me about, about these conversations with the Lord. And I'm just like, what? how do you do this? Like next to still just like just all the immaturity that comes out of your brain. 
And, and I'm thinking, like, you know, ultimately, we don't really ever change. We have all this immaturity, and then we have this unbelievable capacity created in God's image to just think about the deepest things. And sometimes my own children remind me, like, I'm, I'm not that deep. Like, I, like, they go even deeper than I do. And it's always simple. Simple, simplicity and depth are not contradictory. The most, the most deep things are simple. The meaning of life, that's not, that's not complex. It's just deep, right? So I often don't know what to tell him. But what I do try to do is I pause. Because he's usually in a deeper place than I am when he asks that question. And, and he's never quite asked a question like this. But I was reading an article recently. And the article was on the meaning of life. And this recent study back in 2019 said this, no one can tell us the real definition of the meaning of life. For some, it's all about happiness, building a family, leading life as it is. For, uh, for others, it's accumulating wealth, whereas for many, life's all about love or money, etc. Many think about the meaning and purpose in life from a philosophical perspective, but the meaning in life is associated with better health, wellness, and perhaps longevity. This is a scientific journal. A new study by the University of California San Diego School of Medicine found the meaning in life is essential for health, well-being, the relationships differ in adults younger and older than the age of 60. Why? Well, the study found that the meaning of, uh, the meaning of life is associated with better physical and mental well-being, while the search for meaning in life may be associated with worse mental well-being and cognitive functioning. Dr. Jest said this, when you are young, like in your 20s, you're unsure about your career. How many in your 20s? Still thinking about your careers? Even if you're in it, you're obsessed with it, right? Like, if I don't figure this out yesterday, my life is ruined. <laughs> Good luck with that, you guys. <laughs> As you start to get in your 30s, 40s, and 50s, you've even more established relationships, and maybe you're married, maybe you have a family, maybe you don't, but you've settled into a career, whatever that career is, and the search decreases, and the meaning in life increases. So they're basically saying you settle into whatever you do, and your meaning increases, even though they're not wanting to define it. And then they go, after the age of 60, things begin to change. People retire from their job, and they start to lose their identity. They quote, that's a quote. Shocking. You, you, your meaning comes from your career, and then you put your career to bed, and you lose your identity. And they start to develop health issues when they lose their identity. Some of them, um, their friends and family begin to pass away. They start searching for meaning in life again because the meaning they once had has changed. Here's the problem. In the world, if you want to live in the way of the world, your meaning in life will always change. It might change twice. It might change three times. But there is nothing of a foundation to put meaning on. There's just not. You can put it in good things. You can put it into a family. You can put it into relationships. You can put it into a meaningful career that might not even be selfish. You might have the most selfless career known to mankind. You might feed orphans in every continent and make sure that there are funds that are going to all these amazing world causes. Uh, or you might end crime or you might do away with trafficking. It doesn't matter how purpose-filled your career is. If that's your identity, your meaning in life will be stripped from you when you put that career to bed. And the way of Jesus is not an amazing career, it's not a life of achievement, and it's never about putting anything of your value 
on your doing. And I know I say it a lot, but here's the problem. We live in a culture where everything is placed on achievement. Everything. 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 And we will wrestle with it every day. And if you continue to think that because you follow Jesus that the wrestle is over, you haven't learned the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is to take stock on the way of the world and continue to daily say, what is it that's coming at me and what am I targeted at? How do you anchor my life? How does the, how does the creator that created all of this that is transcendent and eternal and gives purpose and life and meaning. How does he anchor me on something that cannot be stripped away from me when I put my career to bed? Or what we learned last week with Viktor Frankl, where, where, where in the concentration camps, they can strip you of everything and all your dignity, but it cannot take your meaning from you if your meaning is beyond yourself and your meaning is eternal. It's easier said than done. You have to do it every day. People retire from their jobs and they lose their identity. They start searching for the meaning in life again because the meaning they once had has changed. There's this concept of created versus discovered meaning that Tim Keller talks about. Created meaning is this idea that it can change, meaning that you have to go out and discover or create your, discover it by creating it. It's not discovered as if you have uh, in identity. It's created because I go out and achieve it or I find what I'm good at that I can contribute to the world because there's several needs that humanity recognizes that we have to have. There's the needs of the personality, and there's the needs of the spirit. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But the needs of the spirit end up being towards growth and contribution. Many people never get to the, growth, to the needs of the spirit. These are just human. These aren't Christian necessarily. These are just observations of the human spirit. We need growth and contribution to really feel fulfilled. But, but here's the thing. You can feel fulfilled temporarily, but if your identity changes, you still created that identity. And the, the way of Jesus is identity is something that comes externally that you have to receive. You discover it because you can't create it. Because if you could create it, it can be taken away from you. Do you want an identity that can be taken away from you? Or do you want an identity that can never be grasped and that lives on? That's really the invitation of Jesus, is what kind of identity do you want to live in? He's not trying to take anything from you. He's trying to awaken your soul to what the world wants to rob you from. And the world will rob us not by going after evil things, but by going after great things that we take on as our life. And our life can never be good things. It's good news. All right. Some of us are shocked. I was shocked this week. That was some of the stuff I was crying about with the Lord. It's fine. We can get emotional in a minute. Okay. So there's an ancient religious creed that goes something like this. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohinu, Adonai Yihad. Hero Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And it goes on and says, and you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It's known as the Shema. Children of Israel have been taught 
the Shema and recited it. It goes on much longer than that. Deuteronomy 6. That is the one commandment. Love the Lord your God. The one. With all your heart. With all your soul. With all your mind. And then a rabbi named Yeshua came along. In the middle of the Roman Empire's rule in ancient Israel. And he reminds those that were following his teaching. What is the greatest commandment? And he says the same. He quotes the Shema. And then he says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what does he do in that? Is he disrupts the entire religious system that has been built first on a good thing, the children of Israel, and then on an evil thing, which was we're better and we're more elite. And that this is what the law looks like and that that can bring holiness and righteousness. And when you love your neighbor as yourself, the neighbor that cannot love God like I can because we the Jews are the only true followers of the one true way, he subverts the very trigger of their culture without doing away with the law, but bringing the trueness of the law to the surface. I believe that that is our task in a Christian faith that has lost its impact in our world. We have to expose how religion, how lies, and how evil has infiltrated the purity of the bride. We have to own it. And when we own it, when we take part of piercing it with the sword of the Spirit, we will start to have the respect of the people. The reason why Jesus had a following was because he started slaying the religious system, and people loved it because they knew in their hearts something was off. The church is not shrinking. The church is about to explode when the church is purified, when the church starts taking hold of the fullness of the gospel, when Jesus starts getting magnified and they start seeing him through the cloud and through the lens that's been perverted, and when Christians start rising up and showing them what it really looks like. Life will never be boring. Life cannot be boring when you start slaying lies and slaying evil. I've been watching a lot of slaying with my kids, so I don't know where that term came from, but there you go. Was it Lord of the Rings again? There we go. Too complicated for me, that movie. All right, so back to N.T. Wright. When he's finally started realizing that he had no answer for his grandson, he, his, his, very, his very whittled down philosophical approach looked like this. Why do we exist? Well, he says the church exists for primarily two closely correlated purposes, to worship God and to work for his kingdom in the world. The church also exists for a third purpose, which serves the other two to encourage one another, build one another up in faith, to pray with one another, and to learn from one another, teach one another, and to set one another's example to follow. Challenges to take up, urgent tasks to perform. This is all part of what is known loosely as fellowship. Try telling that to a grandchild. But here's the theology that's in that. First and foremost, the purpose of the church and the people of those that compose it is worship. The second, build the kingdom. You have a mission. And the third, fellowship. Followers of the way of Jesus are disciples of Jesus from Nazareth. Worship, mission, discipleship. 
Rick Warren, I've mentioned this a couple times, he has the best-selling book uh, of any of our lives beyond the Bible, a Christian book. And The Purpose Driven Life does, it, it talks about five things. What does God want me to do with the rest of my life? Number one, God wants me to center my life around Him. You were planned for God's pleasure. Number two, God wants me to learn to love His family. You were formed for His family. Number three, God wants me to cultivate spiritual maturity. You were created to become like Jesus. God wants me to contribute, number four, something back. You were shaped for serving God. And number five, God wants me to tell others about his love. You were made for a mission. Those five elements essentially give the descriptors of worship, discipleship, where fellowship comes under, and mission, where ministry comes under. Worship, discipleship, and mission. Dallas Willard talked a lot about this, former USC professor, and, and uh, John Mark Comer essentially uh, planted a church in Portland that built their entire ethos of the community by summarizing Dallas Willard's words like this. The purpose of a follower of Jesus is simply to be with him, to become like him, and to do what he did. When we whittle down the purpose and the meaning of our lives, can we start there? When we lose this, you've lost everything of what God created us to walk in. Be with him. Become like him. Do what he did. So here's what we're going to do over these 40 days. We're going to look at these three core purposes of why we're created. Worship, discipleship, mission. Be with Jesus. Become like him and do what he did. And we're going to look at them through the lens of humanity's basic needs. The basic needs being certainty and uncertainty. Significance. Connection and love, those are the first four, the needs of the personality. Then growth and contribution, the needs of the spirit. And we're going to do this by taking a fresh look at the controversial things that Jesus offers. Because when Jesus makes an offer, it's only with the assumption that you're willing to take him really, really seriously. But what he offers is a fresh meaning of life, the only meaning of life true identity, true freedom, true satisfaction, and true hope. And we'll see that those are not just the themes of Scripture. Those are the themes of the human spirit. And if you want a story that the people of the world want to listen to, you start developing stories and narratives around freedom, around identity, around hope and satisfaction. You start to make creative endeavors, writing songs, whether it's painting, whether it's, whether it's research degrees, PhDs. We have to be a people that, that we're obsessed with the story of God. And when we're obsessed with the story of God, you realize he's obsessed with you. And he's obsessed with moving his story through you and everything that you do. And it's amazing how this can come out great. If you've, got, if, you've got a, if you've got an outlet, if you've got a creative outlet, if you have an audience, amazing. But if you mop floors, or if you flip chicken, or if you're just a student, or if you're just a stay-at-home whatever, or if you just hate your job and you make a million dollars a year, Here's the thing, you can still take the purposes of God for your life, transpose them on your places of influence or lack of influence, and you'll never find satisfaction and fulfillment apart from these three purposes. You won't. And I want to convince us of that.
Because if we can be, you're not going to be convinced with one message. You're not going to even be fully convinced in 40 days. It's going to be the pursuit of your life, saying, I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to build my life around this. I want to briefly say what the needs of the personality are. Certainty and comfort. Um, I'm taking these from a kind of a hybrid of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You've, you've maybe looked at that. And then uh, the modern uh, humanistic theologian named Tony Robbins describes them like this. Certainty and comfort. He goes, that they can avoid pain. We all have this human need of certainty, which is comfort. That we can avoid pain and at least be comfortable. And how do you get it? You can control everyone. You can control everyone. You can get a skill. You can give up or smoke a cigarette. But if we get certainty, what do we get? Ultimately, certainty gives us boredom. If everything is certain, we'd get bored. So God gave us a second human need, uncertainty. And in uncertainty, you get variety. You get surprises. And we think we like them, but we only like the ones that we want. The surprises we don't want, we call problems. We run a video. This was from a few years ago. No one rents a video anymore. We read a book, already seen. And you, you watch something you've already seen. Why? Because you know it's good, and you're hoping that you're going to forget enough of it that it'll surprise you at the end, but you know it's good. So you get, this, you get both certainty and uncertainty at the same time, right? Then the third human need is significance. To feel special or unique. Remember, this is what... People already know this isn't the church. This, this isn't necessarily scripture. I want to show you how the purposes that Jesus gives you, the meaning that he gives our life, it meets every single one of these human needs that the world is craving. Significance, to feel special or unique, whether that's making more money, being more spiritual, getting more tattoos. The fastest way with no background or resources to get significance is violence. So if you put a gun to your head in the hood, Instant significance, right? People are looking for significance. They're not horrific. They're not evil. People are looking for significance. How certain am I that someone's going to respond when you put a gun to their head? But it's exciting and it's, it's uncertain how someone's going to respond. And you can start with violence or you can go any different which way around it. But violence will always be around unless we have a consciousness change is what he says. The kingdom would maybe call it a little bit different, but it's on the track of the kingdom. Number four, connection and love. We all want it, but most people settle for connection because love is too scary. You don't want to get hurt because you're going to get hurt again. But here's what's true. We need connection and we need love. We can do it through intimacy. We can do it through friendship, prayer, walking in nature, or you're getting a dog. Not a cat, only a dog. Every human finds a way to get these first four needs met, the needs of the personality, even if you have to lie to yourself with a split personality. Isn't that interesting? The last two are the needs of the spirit. This is where fulfillment comes from, not the first four. And the last two are growth and contribution. Discipleship, where you mature, Mission is where you contribute. You do the works of Jesus. The last two that most people never get to are two-thirds of the way of Jesus. And what do we really get in the presence of God in worship? So we get connection. We get love. We get certainty and uncertainty. Because we know there are elements about who God is and how he'll never change. And then he always surprises us. 
And he always walks us into tension that we don't understand. And he leaves us there. Then he meets us there. Tim Keller then says, the meaning in life comes down to this, that I have a purpose and I make a difference. How do you make a difference? Growth, contribute, the needs of the Spirit. So we need meaning, but the story of culture is that there's no discovered meaning, is that I have to create it myself. That's what culture is telling us. And then on top of that, we live in a modern society that has a confusion between internal and external affirmation, meaning that I've talked about this, where, where in the past, we found some measure of identity being from a people or a family or a group, and I knew that I was going to, like Jesus, was going to be a carpenter from, when, from the very moment that he grew up, and maybe if he was really smart, he'd be a rabbi. It, not many options. Those of us today, we have endless options, endless freedoms, and what comes with that is anxiety and fear and oppression, because ultimately we realize that we have so much that we could choose to step into, and we feel miserable that we're doing nothing with what we have in front of us. And we're not told by our family that we're significant, really. We might be told we're loved. We might be told we're special. But ultimately, what our culture tells us is that we have to go out and make something of ourselves. And so we have to press against that. Even the people in Jesus' day did not have the same dynamics that we have today. We have to understand that. So the question, can you have meaning with no discovered and only created meaning? Meaning, if I'm creating it, if I'm going out and achieving it, can you have some measure of meaning? And, and the answer would be somewhere between yes and no. Yes in the fact that if you have something more important than yourself, a cause that will outlive you, whether, whether that's some kind of justice or kids or even pets, weird pets that might outlive you, there's something transcendent about that. It goes beyond yourself. And if that's your reason for, for meaning, you're starting to tap into something more eternal than just your your finite ability as a human being. But no, ultimately, is the answer to meaning if you create it and you don't discover it and receive it. Because ultimately, to create or to achieve your own meaning is far less durable, far less rational, and far less morally and socially useful. And I'm going to put it like this. Number one, it's less rational, meaning it makes less sense. Why does it make less sense? Sooner or later, the secular reality, the world around us, it's going to be gone, and it won't matter. So when you're in a dark place, you think through the implications of your beliefs. Have any of you been there? When you get in a dark place, you're like, what does it all matter? That's what Tolstoy, if you get into the, reading those kind of philosophers, it'll make you super dark and make you want to like listen to some really, really boring music, dark, dark stuff. I've had a few seconds of that. Here's the beautiful good news. Christianity believes, the gospel believes, that therefore the worst that happens to us when I die is the best thing that could happen to me. And all these good outcomes of the life of the believer are stable. Tolstoy got sadder and sadder and sadder when he thought about his beliefs in the universe. Here's what C.S. Lewis has to say. you got to put a C.S. Lewis in if you're going to talk about death or belief or eternity, right? Okay, so C.S. Lewis says this. You might decide to simply have a good time, as good a time as possible. The universe is a universe of nonsense, if that's what you think. So he's talking about a belief in modern evolutionary biology. This is what Lewis says. You might decide to simply have as good a time as possible. The universe is, is a universe of nonsense. But since you're here, 
Grab what you can. Unfortunately, you can't, except in the lowest animal sense. Be in love with a girl if you know. And keep on remembering that all the beauties, both of her person and of her character, are a momentary and accidental pattern produced by the collision of atoms and that your own response to them is only a sort of psychic phosphorescence arising from the behavior of your genes. You can't go on getting very serious pleasure from music if you know and remember that its air of significance is a pure illusion, that you like it only because your nervous system is irrationally conditioned to like it. You may still, in the lowest sense, have a good time. But just in so far as it becomes very good, just in so far as it ever threatens to push you on from cold sensuality into real warmth and enthusiasm and joy, so far you will be forced to feel the hopeless disharmony between your own emotions and the universe in which you think you really live. There's C.S. Lewis breaking your brain again. What is he ultimately saying? This world, apart from a creator, makes very little sense. Number two, it's less durable, meaning what? This view of creating your own meaning, it cannot take suffering. Why? Because you have your meaning on something in this life and it can be taken from you. Remember Viktor Frankl. If your meaning is something the death camp can take from you, you will die or turn evil. Western society is the worst for preparing people for suffering or death. It's less durable and it's less rational. Number three, it's less morally and socially useful. In my words, that was Keller in my words, it's not a real standard that you can trust. Why do we even say on our money, in God, we trust? Because there's something, still, don't do the Christian nation thing, that's annoying. It's, it's, because, it's because you actually, when you get down to it, what do you really trust in? Because if you trust in the markets, they have proven to ruin people's lives. What do you trust in? Every piece of money. It's an invitation. I still can't believe we haven't had, you know, tried to take that off our money. And I think the bottom line is people are kind of like, well, what are we going to put on instead? <laughs> that's my opinion. I don't know if that's true. But if there's no God, you can have a, uh, a moral feeling. But without God, there's no basis for moral obligation, which means what? Why do you ultimately, morally, not need to have something if there is no God? If there's no transcendent creator or no order... There's nothing going to be around to remember anything of significance of your life or anyone's life that you touched in a billion years. And if that's the reality, then the only thing you can possibly do is to create some kind of meaning that ultimately will not matter if you were a child molester or you were Mother Teresa. And when you sit around and think about it, it's less rational, it's less durable in suffering, and it doesn't even make sense on a morally and socially useful agenda. You cannot put a real standard on that, can you? Because it will always change. So without a discovered meaning, you have no basis. You have no logos. Last week we talked to John 1. The word became flesh. That word is logos. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. 
What the word logos means is the reason for existence. In the beginning, the reason for existence was God. And here's the thing. It's morally and socially absolute. And in a billion years from now, it'll be the same. So if Christianity were true, what would the meaning in life be? And Keller takes these points and he says something to the effect of that when John talks about the reason for existence, the word, he says that Christ himself claims to be the truth, the reason for very existence. In other words, it's a person. Think how radical that is. It's not an abstract concept. He's talking about the meaning of life. John begins his gospel by trying to tell those who are wrestling with the existence of humanity that this is something that you can receive as a real identity. And number two, it's a person, number one. Number two, this reason for existence comes to us. If you have a meaning in life that's a person that comes and discovers you, that answers the problems, we, don't, we, do, we tend to not want a love relationship that's imposed on us. We don't like it. We don't like arranged marriages, even though they probably work better. <laughs> and we've talked about being warmed up to the idea in the last few years, but I don't think we're going to win that battle. But the reality is, is we don't want a love relationship imposed on us. And Jesus doesn't impose it on us. He invites us, and he pursues us. Christianity is a person, and it comes to us. In Christianity, the meaning in life isn't the Ten Commandments, and it's not to please your wife or to please anyone else, but to respond to him who is a person, who comes to us, and we respond out of love because he first loved us. The Logos is a person, and a love relationship with him is the meaning, and the only meaning that we're ever going to find. I want to close with this concept of worship, discipleship, and mission. Worship, ultimately, we are going to explore, is simply being with him because he wants you. And could you just close your eyes as we close? And I just want to read these things over you because this is like a fire hydrant today. And then in the coming weeks, we're going to pick some of these things apart. And without trying to figure it all out or figure out what am I supposed to do with this today, I just want to read some of these things and speak some of these things and pray some of these things over us. And I want to start with being with him. We're with him, and he calls us to be with him because he wants us. In worship, he has intimacy with you. His presence is with you and walks with you. You never walk alone. In the wilderness, in the desert, in the storm, in prison and in suffering, he's with you and he knows you. That's his presence. But in that place, in that place is where your priorities are set and where idols fall. The priorities of your life are set with the person of Jesus. Sabbath becomes worship as much because it forces you to trust him. And it forces you to realize that you can get so much more done with him in less time than without him. It sets the rhythm of the rest and reflection, the priority of the fellowship of believers in your life. And it's the place where you find identity and meaning and belonging. In discipleship, we become like him. We become disciples of the way of Jesus against the way of the world. The place we're formed and matured. It requires a covenant people to demonstrate heaven on earth. 
And I was stirred with this. Just receive this. I'm supposed to be a professional Christian, a pastor. I need every single one of you. I was reminded just several weeks ago, my kids are in kids' ministry, the ones that give amazing words. But as they're processing, Jared gives them this, this moment where they're processing songs. My kid's favorite song is a, is a song with a music video of, of demonic activity. And they processed it together. And he asked them questions. And my own kids came to the conclusion, I don't even want to listen to this anymore. And why they didn't want to listen to it. And all, it, it became because someone in the community started being involved in my kid's life. I can't do it perfectly, and I need you. We have to have each other. You cannot live the Christian life apart from a fellowship of believers, of belonging and identity. In mission, we do what Jesus does. You're commissioned with all authority of heaven to multiply disciples, to destroy the works of the enemy and meet the needs of the world with the food that their soul craves. We go on mission to minister and multiply, and we do what Jesus does. We destroy the works of the enemy by ministering, by ministering to a starving world. And if we can be consumed with our own needs, we'll never meet theirs. The beauty is often that we believers just trust him to meet our needs as we imperfectly offer ourselves to our neighbor. And in the process, he somehow meets our needs along the way. Why don't you stand? Worship team can come up. I'm going to try to close fast. And maybe your eyes are still already closed and you're having a moment. But, but I want us to remember the great, the great command and the great commission. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Strength. And then go. Baptize them in the Trinity. And teach them. Make disciples. All nations. What if the meaning and purpose of life was really just wrapped up in those two commissions? The great commandment with the great commission. And what if the world at large has been lying to us the whole time that we have to discover by creating some kind of alternative identity over ourselves? The freedoms of this world are keeping us from stepping in to the abundance of what Jesus offers. Meaning, hope, significance, freedom. If you'll allow him to meet you. I just want to invite you to open your spirits today. Open your spirits to these purposes. Be with him. Become like him. Do what he does. Let it just simply drip into the deepest part of your being. It doesn't have to be complicated. It's just deep. Holy Spirit, what's gotten in the way of closeness, of maturity, of mission? What's gotten in the way of a meaning that no suffering can take away? What's gotten in the way of an identity that won't crush you and that's not vulnerable to the ups and downs or failures or successes of life? Can I trust you with it, Father? Can I trust you? What's gotten in the way of a hope that can face anything and give you a deep satisfaction that brings fulfillment, 
that brings a direction to growth and contribution that the world so craves and needs? Can you embrace him today face to face with these questions? And let him re-establish your life around true discipleship, true worship, true mission. Forty days, 15 years. How are you going to set the rhythm of your life? Start simple. We want to invite you to 40 days. Fill yourself with what you know you crave. Fill it with community. We've got groups that are going for these 40 days only. No longer commitment than that. Make it a priority. Don't do it alone. And if that's not feasible, fill yourself with the word of God every day. Make a space, make a moment, make a priority, and then purge something. Purge social media, purge sugar, purge food, whatever you need to fast to say that I am dependent on you and I'm prioritizing you because your purposes are my purposes and I receive it and I want it. 40 days for 15 years. I really believe that the trajectory of this community, this body, we're going to look back to these 40 days and see a significant shift. But the testimonies are going to be personal and they're going to be intimate and they're going to be yours. Do not miss what the Lord is doing in the still small voice, in the breakthrough in the relationships, in the breakthrough in the workplace, the healing of the wrists, the healing of the mind. Don't miss what he's doing. Allow others to speak into it. Allow others to lift you up. Allow others to challenge you, to strengthen you. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We're going to be officially done, but as the team plays, just respond. If something in your life you know you need to reprioritize towards these purposes, if there's something, just lift a hand to Jesus. Lift both hands if that's you. There's something that you just felt highlighted today to reorganize something in my life. Just lift your hands. Amen. Thank you, God. Thank you for this response. We thank you for the 15 years that are coming. We thank you for the gift, the meaning of our lives. Thank you that we do not have to achieve it. We do not have to create it. We just have to discover and receive it every day. 